listening to Divorce Happy Hour with your hosts, Christina Previtt and John Nocklinger. We're two divorce lawyers from New Jersey here to talk about love, life, and divorce. Whether you're thinking about divorce, going through one now, or been there, done that, or if you're just a divorce lawyer, this show is for you. To learn more about us and our law firm, you can find us at centraljerseyfamilylaw.com. You can also find us on social media. Just search for NJ Divorce Solutions on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Let us know if you like the show or hate the show and what topics you'd like us to cover in the future. Please keep in mind that this show is for informational purposes only. It's not intended to take the place of legal advice. If you need legal advice, please call New Jersey Divorce Solutions at 732-384-1550 and mention this program for a free consultation. We're going to be doing top 10 lists of things during our show moving forward. And uh, first top 10 uh, list we have for you is about child support and emancipation. One of the most boring subjects that could possibly exist, but we're going to make it fun, aren't we, Christina? That's right. So why don't you get us started, Christina? All right. So the first, the number one, how is child support calculated? So I've probably answered this question about 5,000 times. And most of the time to the average divorcing couple, it's going to be by the New Jersey child support guidelines. And what that is, is basically we have um, a formula um, with their software that contains the formula and it's very complicated but we use the software because basically what we do is we put plug in the numbers, we plug in the income figures for, you know, mom and dad, and it basically just spits out a number based upon how many children you have, and it just gives you the number, and that's what it is. And you can play around with it a little bit. You know, for instance, if somebody has mandatory union dues or mandatory retirement contributions, that can adjust the child support award slightly. But for the most part, it's really a very easy calculation and you just plug in some numbers and it gives you a figure. And there's not much room to play around with it generally. I was going to say, and that's what I love about it is it's the one thing always where I can tell clients, it is what it is. You're not arguing about it. It is what it is. Whatever the program says it is, is what what you're going to pay. And what I also love about it is it's the one area where we, we rely upon the program to calculate it, because I don't know about you, Christina, I did not go to college to be a mathematician, and uh, unless I have a calculator, numbers scare the living crap out of me, and it's not going to happen without the program. That's right. The joke is lawyers went to law school because they didn't want to uh, go to medical school and have to deal with math and science. <laughs> or, or they went to law school because they can't stop talking, and they like to talk. And That's talk right. And talk be and quiet now, John. Let's get on to number two. <laughs> All right. Number two, how is income calculated? Sounds pretty simple, right? Well, you wouldn't believe the pages and pages of text in our rules about what constitutes income, and you also wouldn't believe why, that people just don't understand it. I mean, income's your income from your job, obviously, but it also includes your bonuses, your overtime. It includes the second job that you have. In fact, we got a question on Facebook. Is a part-time job included in income? Yeah. It's all your income. It's everything you earn. It's part of your income. If you go gambling in Atlantic City and you strike it big, guess what? You're going to be paying more in child support because that's part of your, that will be part of your income now. Now, John, what do you think if somebody's arguing about, you know, whether a husband's income is 90000 or whether it's 100000 Is that really worth arguing about? Of course not. That doesn't stop people from doing it because people love to argue about anything and everything. It, 
child support, just so you know, if you increase someone's income 10 grand, it might increase child support by like $30 a week. It's not significant. Oh yeah. I would, I would say even much less than that. Yeah, it, it doesn't I mean, change it by much. Yeah. It's, it might not even move it that far, but you know what? It, whenever people are self-employed, it gets a little bit more complicated because, yeah. um, People that are self-employed can manipulate their income as much as they want. And obviously, if people have get cash payments, you know, uh, contractors, landscapers, people that deal in cash, it gets a little bit more complicated. But for the most part, income's pretty simple. And uh, there's pages, like I said, pages and pages of boring, boring text that show you exactly what constitutes income. Yeah, and just a, um, a, a point to make with the um, income figures is what I generally will do is I'll, if there's some question about whether husband's making 90 or 100 or, you know, there's some spread, I'll just sit down with my client and do f a few different scenarios with the guidelines so they can see what the difference is. And then they can make a decision about, you know, how important it is to them to continue to pay legal fees to dispute their income figure. Well, so definitely I'm, start there. Well, that's particularly important. And we'll get to this later in our um, conversation. But child support usually changes several times over the course of a child's life because of changes in income, changes in how much time the kid's spending with everybody, changes in uh, the cost of medical insurance, all different things. So finding too much about it now is not really terribly a wise use of time because it's going to probably change a bunch anyway as you move forward. That's right. It's constantly a cost-benefit analysis. So number three is what expenses are included in the child support amount? Um, so the, uh, there's an easy explanation for that. The, again, the child support guidelines materials that you can get online provide what it, um, actually covers. And, you know, something we hear a lot, kind of as a joke, but sometimes not really as a joke, because I'll hear this often from clients is, you know, my ex-wife is getting the child support and she's getting her nails done with it. She doesn't even spend it on the kids. Well, you know, it's not supposed to be dollar for dollar that you take, you know, $100 a week that you're getting as child support and you put it aside and you only spend it on the child. You know, that spouse is expected to, to utilize those funds for the benefit of the child. So that includes things like paying the rent or paying the mortgage, paying the utility bills, things like that, maintaining a roof over the child's head, buying clothing, um, you know, buying all those incidental things that... We all know that kids need, you know, giving them their lunch money. Um, if they're going to a birthday party, you know, for the next door neighbor, getting them a little gift. Those are all the things that are supposed to be included. Just to give you a list, what's actually written in the child's work guidelines is some of what I just said, housing, food, clothing, transportation, um, that includes, you know, tolls or registration, license, fees, that sort of thing. Um, also, unreimbursed health care expenses. So that means that anything that's not covered by the medical insurance, there's already a small allowance built into the child support amount, which is $250 per year per child. And we're going to go over that a little bit more. Entertainment like sporting events, um, specifically written here, I'm going to read some of the movie rentals, televisions, mobile devices, pets, hobbies, toys, uh, video games. Those are just a few examples. 
other miscellaneous items. I think, John, you posed to me earlier today is, uh, you know, my daughter's blowouts every week. Are those included? And according to the guidelines, yes, it would be included. So what do you do if you want to have something else that maybe you consider to be an extraneous expense, maybe something that's a little more substantial? What do you do if you want an additional contribution to that? And what you can do is you can try to have that categorized as an extraordinary expense. And that does have to go through the court. So if you're in the midst of a divorce now, and there is some, some extraneous expense, and I don't want to hear that it's, you know, it is a blowout once a week. If, it, it has to really be something. Well, what's an, ex- what's an example? Um, well, we were just talking about if you were a dance mom. <laughs> um, if, if there was some additional expense that really goes above and beyond just ordinary recurring expense, like for instance, um, something that we categorize often as an extraordinary expense are the children's extracurricular activities. Because if you have a child in hockey or cheer or dance, those in particular, they're pretty expensive. You can really spend a lot more money on that. I mean, you could be spending well in excess of the child support amount itself just on those things. So if you have something like that, you should be sure to bring that up in, while you're in, involved in the divorce proceeding. You know, just, I, you know I, really th- I really wanted to just say, I thought it was in- interesting when you were reading some of the, the things that are in the guidelines just to see how outdated these are. Yeah. They include movie rentals, and film processing. Yeah, whatever that means. I mean, well, remember, remember, remember in the old days where you actually had to take the film and uh, yes. get the pictures processed. And process? what were you about two when that was happening, John? Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I think I think what really ends up happening is parents typically agree to split extracurricular activities, no matter whether they're small or major, just so that you don't have to argue about what's included or not included. Because quite frankly. It doesn't specify a dollar amount in here. It doesn't say extracurricular expenses up to a certain amount are included, and then after that, you have to pay for them. Social events. I just saw something recently in one of my cases where someone asked for contribution to 23 Sweet 16 parties because they brought $50 a party. party. And um, fortunately, the judge accepted my argument and had to explain to the mother that's included in child support. Yeah, and, and you know, I think just maybe to be devil's advocate here, I, I do, I can sympathize a little bit with, you know, I'm going to say moms, but you know, even if, if it's the dad that's the custodial parent, maybe the dad that's incurring the extra expense, you know, it does seem a little unfair at times to have these other recurring expenses that really can get very costly and you're not getting a contribution from the other parent. So what I'm seeing more and more often, I'm seeing a lot of these other kinds of things being brought up in the dialogue when, when you're negotiating the child support amount. Another thing that I see a lot lately are prom expenses. Because mm. that's really expensive, especially if it's your daughter that's going to the prom. You know, you have to buy a dress and get the hair done and the nails and the limo and all of that. It really gets very expensive. I know, and now the kids are staying down at these houses on the sh- at, down the shore, and you know all those kids expenses. Today. Kids today, insane. I mean, I don't, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it was different when we were growing up. Very different. So um, number four on our list is um, what expenses are not included in child support. It would, Take it away, John. It would sound it would sound pretty uh, self-evident that if we didn't just say it was included, that means it's not included. But you know, I still think it's important to like think about what's not included because it's really um, it's really a lot of things that are you know are big. For example, work-related childcare. 
<clears throat> not included in child support. And it's usually something that gets added in to the child support number, or it may be paid separately. Anything above $250 a year in uh, unreimbursed healthcare expenses, that's medical, dental, orthodontic. Orthodontic are the most argued yeah. about expenses because every payer that I've ever met says, my kid doesn't need braces. And quite frankly, I haven't seen many kids that don't need braces. I mean, almost everyone needs braces or could benefit from braces. Let me put it that way. Vision, psychological. Psychological is another one we always fight about. But Christina's going to talk more about medical expenses in a minute. Uh, private, elementary and secondary school. I mean, basically, if your kids were in private school when you were married and you had the money to do it, you're pro they're probably going to continue to be in private school after you get divorced. Um, but if one parent all of a sudden wants the kids to go to private school, that's probably something that's not going to be ordered unless there's a specific reason for it. Nonetheless, yeah. it's not included in child support. Um, and quite frankly, I think there's a, a bigger question of the uniforms and, and everything else you have to buy when you go to private school. Is that included in child support? Because child support covers clothing, or is it not? Those are the sorts of things that... You get to look at your attorney and say, fight for me and get me the best deal because yeah, we I just don't know had the that, answer. I just had that issue recently, and that was discussed. And um, we did make special provisions for that for the extra cost above and beyond the tuition. We've got um, tuition for college, fees, room and board, and transportation. Yes, college is not included in child support. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that later because you would think... Of course, it's not included in child support, but many people continue to pay child support even after the ch kids go to college. And most importantly, the car for the kid is not included in child support. The car insurance for the kid's car is not included in child support, neither is the maintenance or the gas. What's included in child support is the transportation for the parent yes. driving the kid around. And this is an argument I see come up a lot because people that don't really know what they're talking about will say, oh, it says transportation. That does not include a car for the kid. But then again, does every 17-year-old need a car? Well, the, the other question, too, is does the kid need a Mercedes or a BMW? Of course. Or, you know, I mean, I know that your daughter is going to have a BMW because I've been training her to ask for one. I got a beat-up Ford Thunderbird, <laughs> Ford Thunderbird <laughs> whenever I turned 16. Uh, she's getting something similar. I had a right little now. Chevy Nova, and and it was okay. But what was really wrong about it was it was this awful yellow color, and yeah, I have still have nightmares about it. But you know what? I was very happy to have that car <laughs> because I was free. <laughs> I could go wherever I wanted. Okay. So next on our list is how are medical expenses treated? And I just mentioned previously that built into the guidelines is a, an expense for the first $250 per year per child. So that means co-pays, um, if there were any additional unreimbursed cost that is something that wasn't covered by insurance, um, then that would also be included there. So, you know, fortunately, most of our clients don't really have that problem. Um, but sometimes, you know, especially in New Jersey, you know, you may have a child that has special needs. Perhaps there's a child that has autism or is on the spectrum. 
there may be some other expenses that go above and beyond that first $250 per year. So those should be accounted for in your property settlement agreement. There should be an additional provision that says how you're going to split those costs because you don't want to be arguing about it later. So um, I've got a question for you in splitting costs. <clears throat> how, usually, um, I've, se I've seen this quite a bit where people will enter into settlement agreements where they agree to split everything 50-50 without any consideration of the fact that that might not be fair in the future. Um, you know, wh What is your feeling on that? I mean, when you're negotiating these, mm -hmm. how do you feel about that? Well, I always add a provision that says specifically that this proportion, if it's 50-50 or 60-40, whatever the case may be, I always add a provision that this proportion can be modified in the future in the event of a change in circumstances. Because sometimes you'll get a judge that says, no, I'm not changing that. It doesn't say that I can change it. So just you know, err on the side of caution, put it in there. That's the last thing that you want to be arguing about. And as far as how you reach the proportion, some people will just agree, maybe if their incomes are close, or maybe if they do it in the context of other things that they've negotiated in their agreement, they'll just say, let's just split it equally. But you don't have to do it that way. Um, what's more typical is that on the child support worksheet, when you actually calculate it by the guidelines, there's an income proportion. And we often will use that. So that's that's a good place to start. Yeah, and that's good because <clears throat> that that income proportion will all, will be, take into account alimony. If there's alimony that's being right. paid or received, so it's sort of your after alimony proportions. And uh, I was going to ask you, Christina, what do you do with the premiums for health insurance? Well, those also get factored into the child support calculation in the guidelines. So if you're the one that's maintaining the health insurance for the child, then you are entitled to a credit for the premiums that you're paying for the child. But you do have to provide documentation. So you can get that from usually from your HR department or you can contact the insurance carrier and it's, it's very easy to get and it's very easy to implement into the calculation. So just be aware of that. And what, exa what, what exactly part of the premium is it that you get the credit for? It's only the child's share. So you don't just look at your pay stub and say, well, you know, I've got four people on my insurance. I'm going to divide that amount by four. You have to actually get the breakdown from the carrier that says how much you would pay just for you and then how much you're paying to have a dependent added on. And the difference is the portion that the other spouse has to contribute to. So it can, it can save you a couple of bucks on your, your insurance. Um, I'm sorry, on your calculation if you want to you know, take the time to get those materials. Yeah, I've noticed, uh, used to we would just get <clears throat> the cost of a parent-child minus a parent by themselves, and then you'd split the cost. But um, one, of the, one of the positive things of all the new healthcare changes, um, not that there's a whole lot of positive things, is that um, a lot of times now the cost per person is being broken out specifically. So it's getting a little bit easier to figure out exactly how much each child is costing you as opposed to before where we were just sort of trying to guess. Um, what What is your feeling on uh, provisions that should go into an agreement with regard to medical expenses in terms of whether or not there should be consent and approval in advance? Well, you know, that really depends on the case and how well the parties may be getting along. You know, we typically don't think that divorcing parties are getting along very well, but you know, sometimes they do. They might have some conflict, but for the most part, 
some people may be able to agree on most things, you know, for instance, where the child is going to go to the doctor. So if I have a case like that, I don't know how much extra provisions they really need in their agreement. However, if I have someone that they can't even agree on, you know, what color the room is or what color the sky is, then I'm going to be more inclined to put additional provisions in that agreement. So to answer your question, I'm as detailed as I need to be for that particular family. So if they need some specific provision that there's only going to be consent before you go to an out-of-network provider, then, then I'll make sure that I add that in the agreement. Number six on our list is what happens if I stop working or what happens if I lose my job? <clears throat> in this day and age, uh, that's, those are pretty important questions. Well. There's two kinds of stopping working. There's the kind where you just walk out the door and say, I've had enough, I'm not working anymore. And then there's the other kind where um, you're told, uh, we'll send your stuff to you in a box, get out, <laughs> get out of here. So let's talk about the voluntary first. If you voluntarily quit your job and you just walk out, you're still paying child support based on what you were making before. It's happening. And um, so I can't have the spouse that, you know, when I get a, a disgruntled um, wife or, you know, a, a wife calls me up crying saying, my husband said that he's going to show me he's just going to quit his job and he's not going to have to pay me anything at all. Yeah. I always say, oh, we'll see about that. Yeah. But those are the same guys too that say, arrest me. I don't care. Just yeah. arrest me. I'll just sit in jail. I and don't care. And they're the ones crying like a little baby when they do get arrested. Yeah. So, I mean, I, it's overly simplistic, but if you voluntarily quit your job, you're going to be paying child support based on what you were making. I mean, sometimes people try to argue, oh, it was a hostile work environment or I had to quit because, you know, of X, Y, and Z. But they're going to have to really prove that. And I don't think a judge is really going to look too favorably upon someone that has a child that just voluntarily yeah. stops working. And you know, what I always say to people too, is that people do sometimes seem to think that because they're not working, whether it's voluntary <coughs> or not, that, you know, suddenly they shouldn't have to pay child support. But my response is always, well, is your child going to stop eating just because you're not working? You know, what would happen if you were still married? You know, you'd still have these obligations. Um, yeah. I mean, what happens if you're still married? I know when I was in high school, my father got laid off for a year. What happened? My parents incurred a ton of credit card debt. Yeah. Because you can't just stop living because you uh, lose your job. You've got to find a way to make it happen. And so when you're not living in the same household, the court's going to step in and make sure the kids can still eat. So if you involuntarily lose your job, you're laid off. Um, very simply, the first thing you need to know is under the new statute, um, you cannot even come to court for 90 days. And the whole idea behind that is temporary changes in your income aren't a basis to modify child support. So after 90 days, if you still don't have a job, you can come to court. But guess what? You're going to have to prove to a judge that you literally did everything you possibly could do to get a job. That's right. And what does that entail? What do you have to show the court well, to I, show that you did that? I mean, I, I always think that you really need to show that you sent out approximately five resumes a day and that you really showed that there's nothing out there. But that's not really the end of it. In the short term, the court's going to be looking at, okay, could you find a job similar to what you had before? But after you become unemployed for a longer period of time, you're going to be expected to sort of lower your salary expectations to get a job. Because you can still get relief from a court on a lower salary, but you can't just say, well, I was a vice president of you know, Morgan Stanley, and I didn't get another vice president role at another bank. At some point, you might have to... I, 
You might have to become a teller or a mortgage broker or something else where you make a little bit less money because you can't just sit around unemployed because you didn't get the same job again. All right, again. well, you know, what about the guy? And, you know, I'm going to stop harping on the guys. I feel like I'm beating the guys up today. But let's say I've got a mom who is a PhD or is an MD, and she just says, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to be, I'm going to go be a teacher. And she goes and, you know, cuts her income in half. What about that situation? Well, what I always tell everyone is you can do whatever you want to do. You can stop working. You can change positions. You can do whatever you want to do. But that doesn't mean your support's going to change. That doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're going to get to sit, instead of being a, a surgeon making $500,000 a year, you're a professor at a medical school making $200,000 a year. You may be still paying child support based on $500,000 a year. So you can do whatever you want to do, but just keep in mind that it's not only your income. Because even if you make less mm -hmm. income, the court can look at your other assets. They can look and see how much money do you have in your bank account? How much money do you have in your brokerage account? What do you have in your retirement accounts? What do you have access to in your home equity? Are there other sources of income to sort of... Um, so, so I think what I'm hearing is that it's really a, an issue of voluntariness. So yeah. if, if you're intentionally going out and finding some other job that, you know, fulfills you on an emotional level, but now you're making $8 an hour when you were making $300,000 a year before, then that's really what the problem is, right? Yeah. It, it, you know what I always think of? It, you've seen Office Space before, right? Yes. So Peter, the main character in Office Space, mm -hmm. you know, he's working in the, in the office and making presumably a decent income. And by the end of it, he's working at a construction site and he's all happy. Well, that's fine. He could work in a construction site and be happy and feel no worries in the world, but the less income isn't going to change your child support. You're still going to have to pay child support based on the higher number. So, But what happens if, if either party's income changes in their same job? Yeah, I get that a lot too. And really the question becomes, uh, similar to what you were just talking about, the question really becomes, well, how much um, did the income go down? Or maybe if you're talking about someone whose income increased significantly, um, sometimes you might have the other parent that says, hey, wait a minute, you're making a lot more money. I think you should be paying me a little more. Really what the court's going to look at is, you know, was there a substantial and a permanent change in circumstances. So whether you're talking about the income having gone up or down, that's really what the test is going to be. And, you know, this could be different in front of five different judges. You know, everybody kind of has their own opinion about, well, is, you know, is $5,000 a significant change in circumstances? Is $20,000 a significant change in circumstances? And I think the answer there is, at least it, what I have found is that when it's child support, I think judges are a little more willing to adjust the child support amount for a smaller change in income than they are willing to change anything with respect to alimony. So would you agree with that? Oh, I would definitely agree with that. I think that, <clears throat> I think that when judges are looking at child support, it's really all about the child. It's about, are they able to live a lifestyle that's commensurate or similar to the kind of lifestyle that the, that the parents have? And so you really want, if, if a parent is making $10,000 more, you want to give the kids a little extra money. Because in an intact family, if one parent makes $10,000 more, the kids might be able to get those $100 pair of sneakers that they weren't able to get before. That's right. Or they might get the, a little bit better. Instead of Old Navy, maybe now they're buying Gap. Or instead of Gap, now they're buying Banana Republic. You know, it's that sort of increase. And the, and the judges want to make sure the kids 
aren't punished because their parents aren't together. That's right. And, you know, I think probably what people want to know with respect to this question is if I get a different job making less money, you know, when is it okay? When is it time for me to go to court and get some relief because I'm making a little less? And I generally find that if it's around $10,000, then that to me is probably a basis to go back and adjust it. However, um, I would tell everyone, make sure that you consult with an attorney to have someone do a child support calculation for you with that new income figure, because, you know, maybe the other spouse's income has changed. Maybe there's been some other circumstances that have changed. Maybe the child support guidelines changed because they do re, uh, revise them every so often. You don't want to go to court not having investigated that, only to find out that your your child support amount is going to be higher. So always check that first. And, and again, you know, don't spend five thousand dollars, you know, hiring an attorney to make an application for you to save two dollars a week. So you definitely want to make sure you know what the child support figure could potentially be. And flowing from that is the next question, which is what impact does my parenting schedule have on child support? Because a lot of times one of the things that will change the child support amount is a change in the amount of time each uh, parent has with the kids. Now, the magic number is two overnights a week or more. So if you have two overnights a week or more, and you're the non-custodial parent or the parent that has less than half the time, your child support's gonna decrease. So what you'll see a lot of times in um, disputes is people trying to fight for more than two overnights a week because they're told by their attorneys, you're gonna pay a little bit less in, over, uh, less in child support if you get more than two overnights a week. Yeah, and just to add to that, it doesn't have to be specifically structured that way where you have right. two overnights a week. It just has to be 104 overnights per year. So if you break, you can break that up however you want. Um, and that does not include vacation, and it does not include the holiday parenting schedule. Exactly, which is something that people lose their mind about. And what we mean by overnight, and this has gotten lost big time, with all of our colleagues and with the judges, what an overnight means. It does not mean where the kid puts their head down at night and wakes up in the morning. Overnight means the majority of a 24-hour day. That's right. So if a kid's spending from 7 o'clock in the morning until 10 o'clock at night with one parent, that's an overnight, even though they didn't actually sleep somewhere overnight. So you got to be a little bit more careful about what's going on. But it's really important, the, the amount of time each... Uh, each uh, parent has with the kids because the one thing that we assume when one parent only has two overnights or less than two overnights a week is that they're not having to establish an entire room for the kid. In other words, if you don't have that much time with the kid, you might be able to have them sleep on a couch or somewhere else, or like maybe they have a bed in your bedroom. Whereas if they're with you a whole lot more, the assumption is that you have to have a whole bedroom for them. You have to have an entire place in your house for them. So that's the reason why child support changes so much is that if you've got more time with the kid, there's an assumption that you're going to have to have a bigger residence for the kid. And so we split that cost between the parties as and well. Then, John, you know, what What happens when there's a 50-50 custody arrangement? Well, it, it's, it's unclear. And I'll tell you why it's unclear. There is a case out there 
Um, we're not going to get into w what it means to be a, a trial-level decision, but there's a case out there that suggests that there's a specific formula we should use when the parents have exactly equal time. Are you talking about the Wunsch-Deffler case? I am, but um, naughty, naughty, Christina. We're not talking <laughs> in cases here. Um, but the whole assumption there is that the parents are sharing what we call controlled expenses. Now, controlled expenses... Shampoo. Well, shampoo. Well, sham or is it snore? That's supposed to be my, be my safe word when John starts to get too lawyery on us. Well, it, it, there's an assumption that things like clothes are being bought by both parents. And since they're being bought by both parents, they're no longer just given to the parent, the custodial parent anymore. Yeah, so, so just to answer the question to the average person out there, not the lawyers, you know, the lawyer crowd, well, hopefully they all know the answer to this question already, but just to the average person, how, what, what can they expect child support to, to be if there's a 50-50? Is it significantly reduced? Is it the, just the same as if they had, you know, what you described it's, earlier, it, 104 overnights a year? If it's 50, 50 if, it, if it's equal time and the party's incomes are relatively similar, there's not going to be child support. Or it's going to be very minimal, so minimal that usually people will just agree for there to be no child support. That's right. And you know what? To, to, to go on to that point a little further, I have a case now where there is a 50-50. The parties have not agreed on the child support amount yet. And they are arguing about that. And the, we'll say the husband, he makes more, he makes about $40,000 more. He's insisting that he should not have to pay child support because it's a 50-50. And I hear that a lot. I hear people a lot say, well, it's a 50-50, so it's just a wash. That's always the word they use. It's a wash. Um, but would you agree with that? I mean, that's really not what well, the law not, is, right? It's not a wash because the parent making more money can give a better lifestyle that's to the kids right. than the other parent. And it's, that's about, right. it's about making sure the, the children, I, I would think of it like this. It's ensuring the children have a similar experience at both houses. That's right. So, so it's not a wash because even though the time sharing might be equal, the income of each household is not equal. So really the PPR with the parent of primary residence is generally, that's the one that pays child support to the other parent. So the PPR is always going to be the one that's making more. And I don't mean a thousand dollars more. It has to be, you know, significant enough that it makes a difference in what one parent is spending over the other. So, right. Right. Cause you're not going to have child support of $2 a week or $3 a week. You're just not going to do that. It's, it's not, it's too much trouble. So if it's, if there's a difference of $40,000, there's going to be a nice, there's still going to be 30, yes. 40, $50 of child support a week, which will make a big difference. But what happens when a child goes to school? So what you mean college? College, yeah. Okay, so when when that happens, the child support doesn't just stay the same. And you know, this is something that people should try to at least discuss a little bit when they're negotiating their property settlement agreement, even if the kid's four. Obviously, it's more important if the kids are you know, 15 or 16 and they're closer to college age, but it doesn't just automatically continue by guidelines. But at the same time, it doesn't just automatically stop. So there really needs to be a conversation about what the child's expenses are going to be. And, and there's a number of factors, like where is the kid going to go to school? Is the kid going to be living at home with one of the parents and commuting to school? 
Um, is the kid going to be out of state? And how much is the college going to cost? What's, what's the cost of tuition and fees? And we all know college is extremely expensive now, especially if it it's is? out of... Oh, my God. I've never heard that. Yeah, like back in the day when I had to walk to school uphill both ways, you know, it wasn't Barefoot, a lot. Yes. Barefoot in the snow? It wasn't a lot. But um, now it's, I mean... It's, you know, it could be 50000 a year or more. Well, that's what they're estimating is $200,000 uh, for four years of college for any kid born today. I mean, that's insane. That's amazing. That's at public schools. Public schools. Yeah. So, I can't um, believe that. So, the, so basically the, the takeaway to the parent where the child is living, um, you, well, you should have some dialogue about what your expenses are that you are incurring to have that child, you know, keep a room at your house. And, you know, you are still maintaining a a roof over the child's head when the child is home, but you're not necessarily automatically entitled to a child support guidelines amount. So you should probably expect there to be some kind of reduction. Yeah. I, I, the, the argument's always, well, I still have to pay rent or a mortgage, even though the kid's not home with me the entire year. But you know, that's something that people fight about nonstop. <clears throat> so moving on to the most important question of the entire conversation. When do you have to stop? When do you get to stop paying child support? Um, well, when you die. No, I'm just kidding. Well, <laughs> never, because your children will always be coming home asking you for something. Yeah, I got to tell you, especially in especially in uh, New Jersey, I hear more and more stories of 30 year olds living at home. I can tell you one thing: when I was 30, if I had to live with my parents, I would kill myself. But well, I, I hope your mom's not listening because she might be very hurt by that. Well, she doesn't like me anyway. She only wants to she only wants to listen to you, so I don't really care. Well, can you blame her? Well, she has to hear me all the time. So, um, child, uh, so child support ends when your kid's emancipated. But since we're not going to talk about legal terms, I'm just going to tell you about the new law that was passed, which um, Christina and I have interpreted the way that I'm going to tell you. And uh, I'll just tell you some of our colleagues don't agree with us on this. But, but it, they're wrong. Yeah, we think they're wrong. But that being the case, the new law specifically says that... Child support terminates when your kid turns 19 years old, unless certain things are going on. Now, when your child turns 19, um, child support will end unless you're the re unless you receive child support and you actually go to court and you say it shouldn't terminate. And here's why. And some of the reasons why it might not terminate is the child's enrolled, still enrolled in high school, so they're still in high school and they're 19. Child's going full time to college or another, you know, technical school, uh, community college, university, whatever the case is. The child has a physical or mental disability that existed prior to them turning 19 and is continuing after they're 19 or other exceptional circumstances. So the way the way that we're looking at this is that 19 is when child support terminates, unless there's some compelling reason to keep it going. And the parent that's receiving child support has to actually come to court and get an order saying child support should so, continue. So how about this, John? If I'm a mom and I'm the custodial parent and I've got a child now that, let's say, is going to a community college or some other college and is about to turn 19, do I have to be concerned? And what do I have to do, if anything? If you have a settlement agreement that already says your child's only going to be emancipated after they graduate from college, 
you don't need to be concerned at all. Because one thing about this statute is if you already have an agreement or an order that says when emancipation is going to occur, that controls. But let's assume you don't have anything saying when your child's going to be emancipated. Under the statute, when it goes into effect, and it doesn't go into effect, I think, until early 2017. So people have a little bit of an opportunity to get to start to understand what happens here. Once your child is 19, turns 19, even if they're in college, if your child support goes through the probation department, they're going to send you something saying, is your child in school? And if they are, you're going to send them some kind of proof. And once they receive the proof, they'll likely present it to a judge and continue the child support without you having to take any action. If you're getting your child support directly from the other parent, under this law, they have the right to just stop paying child support at age 19 when the, their child turns 19. You would have to actually come to court and say, child support should continue and here's why. Now, so Grant, is, that a, is that a good reason for a mom or you know whoever's receiving the child support? Is that a good reason for them to make it payable through probation? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think child support should always go through probation for that reason and for the reason that if the other parent's not paying for whatever reason, probation can take enforcement against them. You don't have to worry about it. So it's it's an interesting it's an interesting area. We have a blog on our website if you want to read more. Uh, yeah, and, and um, just to, to remind everybody, the, the, we've gone over a lot of these issues really quickly, and it's not intended to take the place of legal advice. So if you have any questions at all about your particular case, you absolutely should consult with an attorney who can take the time to speak to you a little more in detail about your case, and also very important to read your property settlement agreement if you have one to see if there's any other provisions that might be relevant to any of these issues. All right. That was fun. That was so fun. <laughs> I've never had so much fun. <laughs> well, let's let's move on to a war story. That's right. So I think, John, you did the war story last week. And this is just intended to share kind of some of our ongoing experiences from week to week because... I'm sure some of you might find it entertaining or might be able to relate to it because it might be something that's happening to you. Um, so my war story is that uh, recently I have this case now. It's actually the same case that I mentioned earlier where there's a 50-50 arrangement and the couple is not in agreement about what the child support should be. Um, basically, the parties had gone to mediation just alone without attorneys. They hadn't consulted with anybody gosh, maybe a year ago. And they thought they had an agreement, at least my client, the wife, thought that they had a deal and nothing was in writing, nothing was signed. And she left kind of on a handshake, I guess, and um, expected that something eventually would be signed and that she was done. Well, it turns out that the husband had a change of heart, didn't want to sign the agreement when she had presented something to him to sign and just completely changed his mind about everything. And naturally, she was extremely disappointed. She was uh, making plans to move and you know move on with her life. And then she finds out that, no, we don't have a deal after all. So now we're in litigation now many months. This, Like I said, this was about a year ago. And it happened once again. The parties have been trying to save some money on legal fees and having some conversations with each other directly, which, which we encourage. And uh, hubby once again says, okay, you know, let's, this is, let's make a deal. This is it. This is what we're going to do. 
Um, hubby asks her to sign some papers to, uh, so he can refinance the house in his name. And smartly this time, she uh, said, no, I'm not willing to do that until we have a signed settlement agreement. Oh, the, the carrot and the stick. That's right. We see that carrot an awful lot. That carrot gets a lot of mileage. Um, but And that was upon my advice, because if you don't have a signed settlement agreement, it's it's not binding. And I, there's going to be a lot of attorneys you know, waving their arms that um, there are some exceptions to that, but they're really very limited and quite honestly, to, to, to fall into one of the exceptions, you have to engage in a lot of litigation. And quite frankly, they don't apply at mediation anyway. That's right. So if you don't have an agreement that is signed by both parties, it's not binding. And it's not preferable that you have any handshakes or you know verbal promises like that because there just becomes question as to what was discussed, what was actually agreed to. Um, and it's just going to, where before you were just arguing about your divorce, now you're arguing about not only your divorce, but whether you had an agreement. So, And I've, I'm sure you've seen it before the other way too, Christina, where you're at mediation and um, the mediator is very excited. I got the parties to agree to something. I got the parties to agree to something. And the mediator produces something in writing for the parties to sign. And parties are like, we just agreed to it. And you're sitting there looking at it. You know, I really think that at least my concern is always that people feel a little bit more uh, like they're not very clear all the time when they're about to sign something like that at mediation. They just sometimes you're at mediation all day, everyone's tired, you're mm-hmm. excited. Sometimes people do need to think about it. And I know you've experienced this as well because we've talked about it, where you've had people have buyer's remorse immediately after you leave mediation. They're like, I shouldn't have signed that. Do you do you ever think that you should just, as a matter of course, not have people sign things at mediation? Or do you think there is some utility in that? I think it really depends on the case. You know, every case is not identical. I don't have a hard and fast rule about definitely sign it or definitely never sign it. It really depends on the case. So if I have a client that I've been working with who's been in litigation for many months and have really is very confident about what he or she wants. And we get to mediation and we're able to get something that looks like, you know, similar to what they've wanted. Um, then I'll advise them to sign it just for the fact that it's done, it's binding. And just like they can't change their mind, the other one can't change their mind either. No, absolutely. All right. Well, thanks everyone for joining us. 